You may be seated. I invite you to turn again in your copy of God's Word to our New Testament preaching passage this evening, or this morning, excuse me. You can find it uh, on page 823 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. We're together this morning studying the parable of the unforgiven servant. Uh, sometimes uh, I feel that I can be too committed to preaching series and always preaching the next text. And Occasionally there are events in the life of the church or the church calendar that will pause in preaching series, but uh, when God gives you a text this good for Easter, uh, I would be a fool not to preach it. So we are continuing our Matthew series, uh, studying the parable of the unforgiven servants and considering particularly how the resurrection of our Savior secures our forgiveness and makes us forgiving people. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, your words are convicting enough just to read them this morning. I pray that you would attend now to the preaching of the word. And especially that you would draw our hearts not to the, the sorrow and the despair of conviction, but to the hope and the joy and the freedom that this passage so points to and calls us to in the forgiveness of Jesus. Raise our eyes, Lord, heavenward, that even this day, wherever we are, wherever we're coming from, 
however we stand before you, we would leave this place praising you for the gift of forgiveness by the resurrected Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I grew up in a home that was obsessed with basketball. Basketball, everything. It occupied all of our time, and so you would not be surprised that my greatest goal as a young child was to dunk a basketball, right? Anybody can shoot it, anybody can lay it up, but I wanted to get all the way right to the rim and dunk it home and hang on the rim, right? It's like a crazy man. But I couldn't do it. I was two years old, I was three years old, I was four years old, so I got the next best thing, right? My dad. (laughs) Dad, can you pick me up so I can dunk it? And he does. Dad, pick me up again so I can dunk it again. And I loved my dad picking me up. I could do the impossible. I could soar way higher than any other kid and hang on the rim and dunk and be the champion in my little backyard by the power of my dad, right? It's a favor I have returned often to my own children on our basketball hoop uh, in the backyard. In that moment, as a child, I could accomplish the impossible, I could rise on heights never achieved by a child, all by the power of my dad, right? I could accomplish the impossible by the power of my father. I want to show you in our text this morning something impossible. Much more impossible than a three-year-old dunking a basketball on a 10-foot goal, right? I want to show you something that you can't do on your own. I want to show you something you can never achieve except by the power of your Father, and that by His grace and by His power, you can do something impossible. So much cooler than dunking a basketball. What is it? It's forgiving other people. Forgiving other people. Without the power of our Father in heaven, it's impossible. You'll never reach up to that rim. You might think you can get there. You might tell your friends you've gotten there. This morning, I want to show you that the power of the resurrection, by that power, we are forgiven and we forgive others. By the power of the resurrection, we forgive others. In our verses, Jesus teaches this forgiveness in three ways. He teaches it through a principle, then he teaches it through a parable, then he teaches it through the practical. We're going to look at each of those three ways he teaches us this morning. First, he gives us the principle in verses 21 and 22, the principle of forgiveness. And what he's really doing is he's turning forgiveness on its head such that his followers will and should be considered hypocrites if they claim to experience the forgiveness of God and don't forgive others. We begin with Peter's question. Peter, our uh, ringleader of the disciples, the guy who puts his foot in his mouth more than anyone else. He comes to Jesus asking how often when our brother sins against us, should we forgive him? You'll remember this is where we've been the last two weeks in Matthew 18. What's it like in the church? What's it like living with other people who are sinners? It means two weeks ago, we try really hard not to sin against other people. It means last week, that we graciously confront or overlook others when they sin against us. Today, the third part in the series of chapter 18 is we forgive others. But Peter begins to wonder, as you may be wondering, well, come on, how often do I have to forgive? 
How many times do we have to forgive someone who has sinned against me? And Peter proposes an answer to Jesus. How about seven times, Jesus? What do you think Peter's doing? I think Peter's trying to show how much he thinks he understands grace. I think Peter's saying, you know, the the Jewish tradition, they really like that number three. So I bet you're going to say three. But look at me. I'm going to go all the way up to forgive someone seven times, right? Take three, double it, and add one more. It's that complete number in Scripture. Seven, right, Jesus? You know when somebody you th- thinks they're being generous to you, but they're actually not being generous at all, right? Maybe kids, when your granddad gives you a shiny quarter, says, don't spend it all in the same place, right? <laughs> He's not really generous at all. You you think he's being generous. Peter thinks he's being generous. What's fascinating is that Peter is going to need this same grace later on that he's restricting right here. We're like this today, aren't we? We're not seven. We sort of have a three strikes and you're out rule with other people. We don't say it, but that's sort of of the rule in our minds. Yeah, you sin against me once, shame on you. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. We are also asking the same question. Where's the limit? Jesus answers verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So he takes Peter's number and he multiplies it by 11, right? To get 77 times. Or maybe you're used to a translation that says 70 times seven times, 490 times. Either way, 77, 490. The point is not get your notebook out and start keeping tally marks until you get to the 76th time. The next one you're out. The point is there's no number limit to how many times you forgive someone. There there are maybe some limits we'll talk about later, but there's no numerical limit in how many times we forgive our brother when they sin against us, which is pretty good news because how often are we sinning against each other? A lot. This is shocking. Shocking for the hearers. They thought, man, seven's going to be great. It's shocking for us, isn't it? I mean, you're probably thinking, top three people in your head, are you serious, Jesus? <laughs> Keep forgiving them? I was already up to 75. Now you're telling me it's even more than 77, right? Just as the shock is settling in, Jesus, as the expert teacher, he pivots and he tells a story. So this is the second way he teaches us about forgiveness. He gives us the principle. There's no limit to your forgiveness. Then he gives us the parable. Verses 29 to 34, this famous parable of the unforgiving servant. It actually comes to us in three phases or sort of three acts in the parable, right? There's the king and servant number one, and then there's servant number one and servant number two, and then we're back to king and, and servant number one, right? So, so look at what he teaches in each of these. The first part, the first scene, verses 23 to 27, we meet a servant who is in debt to his king. The king wants to settle the debt. The servant cannot pay the debt, so he's thrown in in prison, in debtor's prison, right? Sometimes the biblical numbers mean nothing to us because we don't don't even know what these words mean. The end of verse 24, he owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 of anything sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But a talent, if you follow the footnotes in your Bible, you might have a footnote, a talent is a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages of labor. So in a good life, you might earn three talents, maybe four, right? 
maybe four. Somehow, this guy owes 10,000 talents. Let me do some quick math for you. That's about $6 billion in our economy today. Give or take a couple million, right? Somewhere in the $6 billion range. I don't know about you, but for me, that's a lot of money. That would be a crushing amount of debt. We don't know how this guy racked up all this. I can't even imagine how I would rack up $6 billion worth of debt. The point is not to imagine how could you do that back then. The point is to say, Peter, disciples, you and me, this is the type of debt we owe because of our sin. That our sin has incurred a debt against God that's more or less $6 billion. You think you're not as bad of a sinner? Fine, you can round it down to $5.5 billion, which you owe God, right? The man is then sold into bondage to pay this debt. This is the category of the law of God. The, the, the law says you have broken the law, so now pay. Pay what you owe and pay all of it. The servant has a request for the king. The servant has a great idea. I know how I can pay $6 billion. Let's just refinance the loan, right? Look what he says. Verse 26, he fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. All right, some quick math for us. How long would it take to pay off 10,000 talents if you only earn about three, maybe four talents a year, I'll do it for you. It's 200,000 years of labor. So yeah, be patient with me. I will settle the debt in 200,000 years, right? I don't know many banks that would accept those terms. Look how the king responds in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the servant asks for patience. The king gives pity. It would have been nice for the king to say, okay, I'll wait 200,000 years for you to pay your debt. But he shows him something entirely different. Do you notice the servant is still thinking in the category of the law? Let me earn it back. Let me pay you back. Just be patient a little bit longer. And the king erases the category of the law and he gives him the category of grace. He gives him the gospel. You don't owe anything. Out of pity, the king is moved to erase the debt. Look what he says. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is one of, or probably one of the best images we have in scripture of forgiveness. It is the canceling of a debt. It is the erasing of a debt. It is the zeroing out of all of the money or the talents that you owe and saying it is all forgiven. You now owe nothing. But he doesn't just forgive him. You know what else he does? He's still in prison. So he forgives him and lets him out of debtor's prison. He releases him. The payment is accepted. This is the message of the resurrection for us, that the payment has been accepted. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 25, that Jesus was raised for our justification. 
He was raised in events in the past so that we might know that we are fully and finally forgiven and covered and the debt is erased. Kevin DeYoung gives an illustration of this. He says, imagine a home full of a bunch of rambunctious boys. Uh, and the, the, all of the younger boys go out to play in the yard one day. The older, responsible brother stays inside doing his homework, right? And the younger boys do what younger boys do. They get in trouble. Uh, they buy some fireworks. They blow them up and they break the windows, right? They get in all sorts of trouble out in the yard. Dad calls them in. He says, you're now in trouble. You all go to your room and time out. Then the older brother comes out, who's been dutifully working on his math homework. He says, Dad, I'll take the punishment for them. Dad says, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, so the older brother now goes into the room and time out. What do you think the little, the younger siblings do at this point? Do they go back out and go crazy and play? I don't think so. I think they're sort of hanging and waiting, and they're wondering, is, this, is that going to count for our punishment? Is that going to be enough for mom and dad not to punish us for blowing out their windows? And they anxiously wait, and then timeout is over. The brother is free, and dad says to them, that's it. There's no payment for you. It's all been covered. And then they go wild, right? Because <laughs> the brother has taken the debt, and they have been released. That is what the resurrection assures us, that God has accepted the payment of Jesus. And it is enough. And the empty tomb proclaims that we are forgiven. That's why what comes next is so shocking in the parable. Because the servant leaves being forgiven this unimaginable debt, and he goes and finds another one who owes him money. Second stage of our parable is verses 28 to 30. He finds the servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Again, that weird type of money back then. Maybe your Bible has a footnote. A denarii is a day's wage for a laborer. A day's wage. So you can do the math. A hundred denarii is a hundred days, about three months. Right? So depending on how much, you know, what economy we live in, $10,000, 12000 $15,000, right, for a day laborer wage for three months worth of work. Uh, for most of us, that's a lot of money. But eventually, there's some hope that we could pay that off, unlike the $6 billion. What does he ask for? He asked, just like the other guy did, for patience. Give me some patience. The other guy can't even give him patience. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Here's why this is so galling for us. He should be in prison because of the law and he is freed according to the gospel. And now he goes forth and instead of giving out grace and the gospel to those around us, he gives them the law. You see that he receives grace and he gives law. And it's terrifying for us to see this because it reminds us of ourselves. Ken Sandy writes in his book, The Peacemaker, we take God's forgiveness for granted while we stubbornly withhold our forgiveness from others. This is an appalling response to mercy, not just for us, 
The king sees it. Then the third stage of the parable is back to the, the king, the master and servant number one. In verses 31 to 34, he hears about it. And he throws the guy back in jail. He says, look, you want to operate in a world where you have to pay all your debts? Fine. Guess where you're going? Back in jail. You don't want any grace in your life and the life that you give out? You want to only give law? Well, you're about to receive law. Back in jail. He says, you should have had mercy as I had mercy on you. You see, the gospel that tells us that we are forgiven by the resurrected power of Jesus then sends us out to forgive other people. We are free to go and forgive. Look on the front of your bulletin, that confession of faith that we confessed earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 45. How does the resurrection benefit us? There's three ways here. We've covered the first one. The resurrection tells us that we are justified and forgiven once and for all. The third benefit of the resurrection is the promise that those who die in Christ will be raised again on the last day. Hallelujah, right? The second one is what I want to show you. By his power, we too are raised up to a new life. So the resurrections in the past were justified. It has a promise in the future. We will be raised again. And it means something today. It means today that Christians have a new life. It means, as Paul says in Romans 6, we walk in a newness of life. Listen to this. As sin, I'm sorry, wrong verse. God made the sinners righteous in order that we might walk in a newness of life. What does that newness of life look like? How is that newness of life secured for us? The resurrection. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The old man, the old person within us, the one not trusting in Jesus cannot forgive. Because she doesn't know forgiveness. Because he doesn't know forgiveness. But those who know the forgiveness of God, those whose debt has been erased, now cannot help but forgive. We can only forgive others. Jesus drives the point home in that final ending verse where he gives us the practical Application, our third heading, the practical. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. Let's throw you back in prison. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Your forgiveness of other people is so important that your soul depends on it. Now, you may be wondering, how is this not going back to a religion of works? How is this not saying you do something and God forgives you? How, how, how is Jesus not turning upside down the very gospel that he has just preached that our debt has been forgiven? What he's doing here is he's emphasizing for us the necessity of forgiveness. It's not optional. We talked last week that image of we're like rocks in a rock tumbler. Sharp edges, 
bumping up against each other, offending each other, hurting each other. In that rock tumbler that is the church and the body of Christ, forgiveness is not optional. It is required. It is a necessity. And yet we don't earn God's forgiveness. The debt we owe is too big. We can't pay back $6 billion. There's nothing we do to earn the forgiveness. But our willingness to forgive other people demonstrates the truth that we have been forgiven. Our willingness to forgive other people, it demonstrates that we have been forgiven. Look, if we think we have received grace, but our life is marked by law, I'll only forgive you if you do this, only forgive you if you do that, only forgive you this many times, only if it helps me out. If our life is marked by law, then guess what we know between us and God? Law. But if our life is marked by grace, it testifies that we are a people who have alone received the grace of God. That we alone have had that debt, that debt wiped away. And we testify to knowing forgiveness by extending that same forgiveness to others. Notice those final three words in the section. Just when you think you can get away with telling someone just with words you forgive them, Jesus closes up with forgive them from your heart. Man, he knows us, doesn't he? He knows that we're good with using words that can cover for what's really in our hearts. Why must we forgive our brother from our heart? Because that's how God forgives us. Think if God's forgiveness of you was only his words and he just kept keeping distance from you and he kept turning a cold shoulder to you. And he kept sort of ignoring or avoid. He forgives you, but he doesn't want anything to do with you. That's not from God's heart. That's not how he forgives us. The Bible promises he has removed our transgressions as far as us from us as the east is from the west. We read in Isaiah 43, he says, I will not remember your sins. God knows everything. And yet God chooses that he will not remember the sins of his repentant children. You imagine that? I mean, you stand before God wherever you are this morning, either saying, just give me some time, I'll pay back the debt, or rejoicing in the freedom of the pity and the mercy of God. What would keep you from reject rejecting the free offer of having every one of your debts erased and that God would say I know who you are but I choose to see you not in your filthy rags of your own sin but through the perfect righteousness of Christ so the God who knows everything can say I remember your sins no more because he forgives from the heart so how do we forgive others from the heart that means it's not a feeling it's not we forgive others when we feel like it or when our feelings change towards them. This is telling us that forgiveness is first and foremost a choice. It is a decision to release someone from debt. It is a decision to wipe away the debt. It is a decision to take every last penny that they owe and say, you owe me nothing. It starts with our words, but it must move to our hearts. 
to refuse to hold it against them anymore. Now, I imagine you're thinking to yourself, but what about, but what about this? But what about that situation? What if they don't ask for forgiveness? What if the cost of forgiveness is too much for me to bear? What if I'm trying to forgive them, but I just can't do it? I don't have time to answer all of those questions. Let's think a, a, a broad principle here in this forgiveness is that there is a difference between forgiving and restoring. There is a difference between forgiveness and restoration. I'm going to go out a limb, but I don't think the king here, as soon as he canceled the debt, said to the guy, can I loan you another six billion, right? No, I don't think so. Why? Because though we always forgive, and as the people of God, we do the impossible, and we forgive from the heart, and we stand ready to restore, restoration takes time. And restoration can take a lot of time, depending on how serious the offense is. In time, trust can be rebuilt. In time, the one who has been hurt can be healed. In time, the offender who's asked for repentance can show fruit of repentance, can live according to their words. So it's not just from the mouth, it's from their lives as well. And I will tell you that I, I know to be true, I've heard the testimonies that even those who have received the, the deepest and most heinous of offenses can know and experience the healing power of the Holy Spirit. That God over time can work miracles in brokenhearted people. That God over time can heal and put back together that which seemingly has been destroyed. And those hard memories that you think, I'm never gonna go to bed without remembering that thing again, that runs through your mind. Over time, it only, you only think of it every other night. <laughs> and then you only think of it once a week. And then every once a month. And when you think about it, what, what, what used to make you terrified or, or nauseous uh, or anxious or angry, the sharp cut of those memories begins to dull bit by bit. God is not commanding us to do the impossible and then leaving us to ourselves. He gives us the consoling and comforting Holy Spirit. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows our pain. He knows our sorrows. He does not break us as bruised reeds. He does not snuff out our faintly burning wick. He walks in patience and kindness and pity with us. And sometimes in a fallen world, full restoration won't even happen this side of glory. Doesn't mean God can't do it. Sometimes he won't. So how do we forgive other people? How do we do this, especially when we can't? Let me give you one final verse before we're done to remember, and that is from the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5, Paul says to the church, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So put to death the old man, the old woman, 
put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive others. If you can't forgive someone, let me give you a first step to begin with, and that's the step of repentance. Repent yourself for any sin that you're harboring, for any bitterness in your own heart, for any refusal to take God's word on face value. Who is it that, keep, that you're not forgiving? What is it that keeps you from forgiving them? How have you used the words, but it clearly hasn't yet come uh, from your heart? Second, reflect on God's forgiveness. That's why he gives us this parable. Reflect on the forgiveness of God. Weigh on the scale $12,000 with $6 billion and see how much you have been forgiven. That God is not patient with you. He is merciful with you. He does not give you more time to make it right. He says no infinite amount of time can you ever work to make it right. But he forgives us. Even if you have to forgive someone else 77 times, it's not even close to the amount of times that God has forgiven you. And finally, request a change of heart. It's only by his resurrection power that we can do this. Ask God to change your heart. It's what he does. (laughs) It's what he's good at. Repent, reflect, and request. I want you to imagine with me for a moment a world without forgiveness. Really, we might call it a world without resurrection. A world of death and vengeance. Well, that's the world after the fall. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall is Genesis chapter 4. And we get the first death. Cain kills Abel. Cain is cast out. He lives in rebellion from God. He creates a world in rebellion from God, a world of death, a world of man-centered life, a world without God, and it culminates in a man named Lamech. Lamech is Cain's great-great-great-great-grandson. And everything that Cain wanted, the revenge and the hatred, the world without grace, culminates in this man named Lamech. And here's what Lamech says. This is his poem he writes about his life. He says, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. A world of vengeance culminates in revenging yourself 77 times. This is a hymn of revenge. You see now why that 77 number is so important. Because in a world of resurrection, in a world where death is defeated, in a world where we are forgiven and we are freed to forgive others, it's not revenge 77 times, it's forgive 77 times. And the difference between those two worlds is the resurrection of Christ. I ask you this morning, on this day of resurrection, which song are you singing? Are you singing a hymn of revenge, or are you singing the song of grace? 
He forgave all our debt. Let's get busy forgiving others. Let's pray. Father, even with this parable and even with this math and these numbers and the the money and the debt, we still have no clue all that you have forgiven us for. All that must have been punished on the wrath of our Savior, all that must have been covered and dealt with, the sins that we know and mounting so much higher than that are the sins that we are blissfully unaware of. That our debt is this unimaginable. And yet, in your perfect timing, in your economy, one man on one cross took it all. And we praise you and we rejoice that his blood is enough. His blood pays it all and it covers our sin. And when we doubt, we have but to look at the empty tomb and know that it has been accepted and we are free. Set us free, O God. Set us free ourselves as we deal with sins that are unforgiven. Give us freedom in you to believe the promises of the gospel despite how much we have sinned. And God, make us a forgiving people. Give us joy to set others free with that same freedom that we know. Lord, I know there are those this morning who are under the crushing weight of what others have done against them. And we pray, O oh Lord, for their, your healing power in their hearts and their lives. Move them by your spirit of forgiveness. Wash them with the cleansing blood of the cross that they might first be restored to you and your grace and move in time to restoration with one another. We praise you, O God, for the empty tomb and what it promises us today. In Jesus' name.